Welcome back to the Daedalus Workshop. Thanks for letting us take a week off there. It's got crazy, you know. I was in Arizona. You were in Arizona? I'm taking on too much stuff outside of the podcast between studying and work and taking care of my lawn now that the weather's getting nice. Uh, We are in (laughs) season one, reading a people's history of the United States, and this will be part one of chapter 16 titled A People's War. Question mark? Question mark. Uh, I'm Jason. I'm Ethan. And how are you doing, man? I hate that question. (laughs) How how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, Very tired as of late. Um, trying to trying to trying to make some moves, make some shakes happen in like the personal career path, and it is just tiring. Uh, all tuckered out. All, all yeah, all tuckered out for sure. But um, see a light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm, that's great. Yeah, and I'll do everything in the next hour to make sure your personal career tanks. So <laughs> I'm here for you. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I don't already feel the pressure of walk, walking on an Occam's razor in the modern environment and putting out a podcast with my actual idea, like opinions on it. That's not terrifying in any way. Appreciate that. Yeah. Well, you started this, not me. <laughs> uh, today's going to be well. The chapter we're doing today—it's the World War II chapter. It's the Korean War chapter. It's the Bay of Pigs chapter. That's the summary. We probably won't spend any time in any of those things. Um, and let's see how well it gets. Yeah. Uh, based on what we've learned about Zinn, every time we reach an interesting point of history, he uh, takes the uh, takes the exit ramp and talks if, about something else. If you're looking for <laughs> war, where war is actually happening, this is not the podcast for no. you. Yeah. No, there's other stuff to focus on. Uh, Zinn starts the chapter off from the viewpoint of an American communist. Originally, what was happening over in Europe was seen as just another imperialist war. Until Germany invaded Russia, at which point it became a, quote, people's war against fascism. Indeed, almost all Americans were now in agreement. Capitalists, communists, Democrats, Republicans, poor, rich, and middle class. That this was indeed a people's war. Was it? End quote. This is Zinn's jumping off point to consider whether, by his estimation, the most popular and participatory war in America's history was actually a result of, quote, manufactured support, end quote. Don't worry too much yet. Zinn does portray Hitler as a villain. Quote, it was a war against an enemy of unspeakable evil. Hitler's Germany was extending totalitarianism, racism, militarism, and overt aggressive warfare beyond what an already cynical world had experienced. End quote. And in the next sentence, he takes that classic Zinn turn. Quote, and yet, did the governments conducting this war, England, the United States, the Soviet Union, represent something significantly different? so that their victory would be a blow to imperialism, racism, totalitarianism, militarism in the world, end quote. All right, Jason, hop in here. <laughs> Give me your real-time, as you're reading, reaction to the second page. The second page of the chapter felt like it was attacking me, personally. <laughs> like, really... You felt the knives in the front, not the back. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, attack, like, questioning, uh, pretty obvious questions to widely held, not just beliefs, but kind of like... Well, dude, this is like what I learned. Uh, 
what I had to answer on the tests and stuff like that. And it felt kind of like uh, Zinn was just patting me on my head and like telling me how cute I am. Like, oh man, that that's so cute that you think that that's what was happening. I really enjoy time. you and Zinn's reader reader writer relationship. <laughs> I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. Well, and in that <laughs> uh, in that second page, right? He lists all of the the foreign interventions, and maybe it's just when you list all on one page all of a specific action of any kind, it seems like a lot. I don't actually know if it was a lot because generally you learn um, when you're learning about World War One, World War Two, is that it wasn't really until after World War Two that the United States became more interventionist on world stage. Yeah. But when he puts it all out there from like between 1900 and 1933, like we did this, 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 this. Yeah, I probably should have included that. Or no, I just... Uh, I'm I'm including it. I'm yeah. saying it right now, and it just, it feels like a lot from between like South America to um, so Cuba, especially um, a lot of action in South America. Yeah, and a little bit over in uh, basically less developed areas of the world at the time. Yeah, yeah, we were like poking around and doing some stuff. Um, yeah, so that seeing that all listed out and kind of it's one of the things I enjoy about reading this book just seeing a completely different perspective. But it also feels like, hey, dude, give me a break, man. I didn't read the books that you're citing in this. Like, be nicer. You have an overall opinion on interventionism or do you do case by case or? Yeah, so I guess uh, it's tough, right? The Was it Teddy Roosevelt? Was he the one that said, um, walk silently, carry a big stick? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. So I think, so growing up, kind of like coming of age as far as being aware of the news was definitely 9-11 and on. Yeah. Uh, so I was 12 years old when 9-11 happened. So I, well, technically I just turned 13 and I watched like from my living room, like watch all that happen. So that was the first time that the world and world news came into my home uh, from like that I was actually seeing it. It wasn't just something my parents did. Yeah, I watched yeah. this massive global event happen. Um, and then what came from that, uh, the various like uh, Bush foreign policies and whatnot, I was actually more aware of because I watched that event. So anything that was being tied back to it. And we even have kind of a, a relation here because I think that was a time of what was termed manufactured consent. It was I think during the Bush foreign policies to get us into the Iraq war. So was kind of talking about the manufactured support here. Um, so anyways, uh, obviously I'm 13, very much on the ooh-rah-rah, like the Toby Keith, put a boot in your ass and it's the American way, like it's time for song. payback. The song was played in my house a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, then uh started to get older and kind of flipped on that where it's just like isolationist. Totally, which is uh, more of like the libertarian stance. Like, doesn't like leave it alone, focus on home, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I think I'm in somewhere in a balance now as far as there is a reason to have foreign intervention to kind of like protect not just national interests, but humanitarian interests abroad. Uh, but I am not um, naive to think that kind of like the morals or the values that I hold are necessarily ever being um, uh, espoused in yeah. those foreign interventions. Like, I think it gets real messy. 
Um, sure. So I don't, I don't know. No, that's a great answer. I think you know exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so Zin then fires the broadside cannons with a series of questions. Quote, mm. would the behavior of the United States during the war in military action abroad in treatment of minorities at home be in keeping with a people's war? Would the country's wartime policies respect the rights of ordinary people everywhere to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? And would post-war America, in its policies at home and overseas, exemplify the values for which the war was supposed to have been fought? These questions deserve thought. At the time of World War II, the atmosphere was too dense with war fervor to permit them to be aired. End quote. I actually kind of like this. Um, I like the idea of questioning something that is sacred. I think it can be worthwhile, even if none of your conclusions change. Thoughts? Uh, so I definitely think earnest questioning can like is always good. Can never go f- too far, even if it's questioning wide-held beliefs. As long as it's from the standpoint of like you're coming at this as from yourself, an honest broker and kind of have respect for the other side as far as like the questions that you're asking. What do you mean honest broker? So you're not uh you're not asking questions to uh man, how do I say this? The the thing I was thinking of is now when when you if you watch like presidential briefings now, there's so many reporters that we see that are they seem to focus their questions around starting a flame war so they can get good YouTube clips. Yeah, it's yeah. not an actual like they're. It's not actual. Um, it's not a question that they want an towards answer the to. truth, right? They, they, the goal of the question is not an answer, right? It is not an answer. The goal of the question is to to YouTube clip, yeah, and to force the person into a, a bit that you can take out of context. Yeah, they're just looking for virality. Yeah, and maybe that's unfair to even call that a question. Um, it's just you know they they raise their hands and they do these things. Um, so. <clears throat> Yeah, so in that sense, I don't think anything's off the table. It's fair to ask these questions, but uh, yeah, you get um, stupid questions do exist, though. There are some things where it's like, uh, if you want to go at the foundation of a basic held assumption, like you have to understand that you have to do more work as a person in question, like questioning that. If you want to question like basic principles, like gravity exists, it's like, well, but does it? It's like, oh, come on, dude. You have to go figure that out and decide that on your own. <laughs> Gravity is a tricky one. <laughs> well, so, okay, stupid questions. I feel like my response to that is the idea of, like, the free market of ideas. Yeah. Is you put, like, I think it's important for stupid questions to get out there and to be asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then to get held and seen in the light of all the other kinds of questions. Yeah, oh, totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, not not saying... So, yeah, I'm totally no fine with eventually that. saying, like, some questions are better than others, putting yep. priority and hierarchy on questions. Mm-hmm. But I do think the questions need to get out and in the open. Yeah. I think people hold That's on right. to questions and they just fester and become some sort of bitterness yes. and, and rage. Yeah, for sure. And you just, like, bury that down, let it turn into cancer, and then it consumes you. Yeah. Uh, but, no, yeah, it really, for me, it comes back to kind of, like, what I was calling the honest broker, like... The but why, but why, yeah, but why, but why? It's like that's what little children do. Ask a better question. Um, so yeah, 
<laughs> so what I've tried to do um, for today is to kind of synthesize the chapter and present the main themes, which we'll tackle in the next three episodes. Uh, so the theme one for today is why did the U.S. enter World War II? Um, themes two and three will be next week, which are was fascism also present on American soil? And Which probably means we have to define fascism next week. Yeah, we should. Be great. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, when should you drop a bomb? And then last one for two weeks out is going to be, what was going on in the Cold War? And were there any good guys at all? <laughs> um, so hopefully you've enjoyed the intro, inside of an intro, bundled up within an intro, because we're just getting started. I'm really excited that all these questions are going to be really easy to answer. Like always. Like always. Quote. What seemed clear at the time is that the United States was a democracy with certain liberties, while Germany was a dictatorship persecuting its Jewish minority, imprisoning dissidents, whatever their religion, while proclaiming the supremacy of the Nordic race. However, blacks looking at anti-Semitism in Germany might not see their own situation in the U.S. as much different. And the United States had done little about Hitler's policies of persecution. Indeed, it had joined England and France in appeasing Hitler throughout the 30s. Roosevelt and his Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, were hesitant to criticize publicly Hitler's anti-Semitic policies. When a resolution was introduced in the Senate in January 1934, asking the Senate and the President to express surprise and pain at what the Germans were doing to the Jews and to ask restoration of Jewish rights, the State Department caused this resolution to be buried in committee, according to Arnold Offner in American Appeasement, end quote. Zinn pretty quickly gets to the big question, quote, was this simply poor judgment, an unfortunate error, or was it the logical policy of a government whose main interest was not stopping fascism, but advancing the imperial interests of the United States. I wonder which question, which uh, question, sorry, which of those options Zinn already thinks it was. We all know. <laughs> For those interests, in the 30s, an anti-Soviet policy seemed best. Later, when Japan and Germany threatened U.S. world interests, a pro-Soviet anti-Nazi policy became preferable. Roosevelt was as much concerned to end the oppression of Jews as Lincoln was to end slavery during the Civil War. Their priority in policy, whatever their personal compassion for victims of persecution, was not minority rights, but national power. End quote. So I think our first task here is to ask if we agree with Zinn that the U.S. priority was protecting imperial interests, national interests, the future of the country, etc. Um it does seem to me, we'll get to this, that the Jews were not of the main concern. Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't think Zinn even mentions Hitler's offer to send the Jews away after the Avian Conference, which I guess Hitler's um, seriousness is debatable on that. Um, I think Zinn mentions in this chapter um, the boats of Jews being turned away from allied countries, mm. but that might have been coming from a podcast I listened to. Um, so what yeah, was the U.S. Remember. priority? And then maybe we can touch on what the, the what should the U.S. priority be, which, of course, brings us to Uyghurs in China. Yes. So there there has to be a priority of national interest, right, for any nation. You have to have – that has to be a priority. It has to be relatively high on the list. Otherwise, you will cease to be a nation. Now, maybe that doesn't matter for whatever – maybe there are nations that doesn't matter to, but there is sovereign interests 
whenever talking about foreign policy because I would assume baseline assumption that uh, a nation wants to continue to exist. Um, that being said, I'm with Zinn. What, what always gets me when he starts talking about this stuff and asking like, was it simply poor judgment or unfortunate events or, or in like the earlier quote when he was saying, was this war really upholding, uh, truth justice in the American way, right? Like yeah. these principles, or was it just like kind of a, a, a cash grab? I, I have a hard time knowing what standard he's trying to like hold the United States to. And, and I, you could broadly just say a better one, but we generally think of things as like, if there's a stated goal or there's like a stated principle that there's going to be some mistakes made along the way. And he does this thing where he zooms in and zooms out so quickly, like his perspective goes really broad or it hones in really deeply on like specific missteps or things that seem like kind of, uh, kind of wrong, kind of like mistakes, but then he'll zoom out and go broad again that it, it, it's a hard way to know like, well, how are we, how are we supposed to judge this? If it was good, if it ended up being good overall, and we've talked about this forever, but like incremental change leading to better, mm-hmm. but that's operating with inside the system where it's in what's like tear it all down. I don't know. Uh, how do you judge whether or not from Zinn, how does he judging whether or not something was good? The, the problem is he, like you've said, he just wants to throw it all, all away and like build something completely different. So, well, I mean, so one of his priorities is concern for minority groups. Yeah. But within national, uh, see, and this is where I get stuff within foreign policy interests. Like who who's the minority group? Because now we're talking about like the global scale level, so it depends on like who's the minority group in what nation. So is it specific? Is would his foreign policy? I don't think it would exist. But if it did exist, would it just be centered around oppressed groups within each nation? Um, I mean, I assume foreign policy is focused on the working class, yeah, initially, mm-hmm. and the working class of the world. Yeah. The international working class. Okay. Sure. Which, so which is kind of like, which is more or less what you said. I mean, yeah. the, the oppressed of the world. Yeah. Just the working class. Okay. So then kind of getting back to your, your question, uh, like what should the U S priority be at this specifically at this time? Like we like to think that it was a quick, like, Oh man, Jewish persecution. Like let's get in there and save the day. At least that's what I used to like think. Yeah. And it, it, that was happening much earlier than even when we considered that the war started. So, and I was kind of thinking about this. At this point, we're talking about pre-war declarations. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's already begun. There's already chatter about it. It's starting to come out in the news. I I was trying to think about it. It reminded me of like, you know, when you're watching a detective show and the, the, uh, the detective knows who done it either gut instinct or he he's pieced it together and it's like this is this is the murderer i know it for sure but he doesn't have you know he goes to his boss and they're like you don't have what it takes to convict them johnny and he's got to go and get like actual evidence uh i think sometimes that's what happens in matters of state whether there isn't actually enough evidence to 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 move on this because <sighs> With foreign policy, anytime there's some like uh, hum- 
humanitarian crisis taking place, uh, nations are always hesitant to intervene because once you do that, you're crossing the sovereignty of that nation. That doesn't mean they have a right to commit evil, but what it does mean is you need more people on board, other nations on board. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. I don't think I buy it. Why not? Well, with like the, let's start with just like the, the detective analogy first. Sure. With that, I mean, I think with Hitler and the Jews, it was pretty... Oh man, I, I wish I knew more. I think it was pretty clear what was going on. I don't think it wasn't. I think I don't think it was an issue of we're not sure what's happening. Well, and that's within the analogy. Like the detectives know what's happening. It's clear enough. They can see what's going on. But you have to get the type of whatever evidence to actually um, justify actions, justifying invading the sovereignty of. A different nation. So let's let's ask that and then question. Then the what, allyships. What justifies invading a sovereign nation? Well, I I think a humanitarian crisis like this definitely justifies invading a sovereign nation. But the problem is, uh, do you have enough muscle on the global scale to come out of that on the other side? Like, you can't just invade a nation and and expect if they have various allyships and agreement. Yeah, for other things to, to not set off a series of events. Yes. So yeah, there, yeah. there's there's a bias towards caution with this stuff, especially having the experience of the Great War now. Yeah. So I'm I'm remembering the podcast I listened to where, where I'm confusing some of these details. I listened mm-hmm. to a podcast is called um, Let me shout it out um, Martyr Made. Okay. And he did um, I don't know six, seven, eight, nine hours on. Um, the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Okay. Um, and so one of the things I learned from that podcast, which was new to me, was that there was this 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 um, EVIAN, with E as like a yeah. mark, I think avian EVIAN conference, yeah. where the world stage came together to figure out what to do with um, the Jews. Because the Jews were kind of like, like the gypsies in terms of like they were all over the place. They had this identity yeah. as Jews, but they weren't in any one location. Right. And right. there were some people that were that moved into Palestine and the the Middle East region had welcomed them and it was very friendly in the beginning. Come yeah. on in. That didn't last for long. Um, but there was this conference where people were trying to figure out what are we going to do? There's 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 issues happening in Germany. We know this. I think it was after the Evian conference, Hitler was like, listen, I don't want them here. Feel free to take them. I'll even like foot the bill, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there was no one. No one took up on the offer. No one wanted. No one actually wanted the Jews to come in. They yeah. actually wanted to deal with the Jews coming into their country, but they were trying to like. And so the evening conference was. It was test, to me. It sounded like this whole like everyone was like we got an issue here, but nobody wanted to actually deal with it, and so everyone was trying to like shirk it off on other countries. Yeah, yeah. And trying to like convince you need to deal with this, but I mean we're not going. So it was like. And you look at it that way and go, oh my gosh, like this whole thing could have been, this whole thing actually could have been avoided. Yeah, but couldn't you argue that at that point in time, like the Holocaust hadn't happened? So who expects it to get that bad? I'm not like, eh, okay. I but, can, but I that's, can, that's I can, life, right? Like, yeah, we have can, no idea what to expect. And we have, we have a series of choices mm-hmm. and we have to figure out, well, you don't have to. I, I would argue that um, part of a human's, role in living in the world is to try and make the best choice for yourself and those around you in a Mm -hmm. a slowly ever expanding circle 
based around your capacity. And that best choice thing I agree with, but that gets really hard when you're dealing with outcomes, right? Like you can make a choice and the outcomes are rarely binary. And there's some sort of like, everything has a probability. And we're not that far away from World War One at this point. Do you like one? When, when does uh, even a crisis as bad as what was beginning to unfold in Germany from a leading towards marching towards the Holocaust? When when did it finally cross the threshold of like this is worth going to war for? But this this was even before war. This this was a conference of nations. Oh I, oh right right. You're saying a like conference this, of nations came together to say sure. we have this issue with the Jews. They're being persecuted in, in Germany. They want out. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do about it? How can we help yeah. them? And yeah. nothing was decided. Nobody stepped up to the plate and <laughs> did anything. So the Jews remained in Germany when the countries of the world yeah. could have each taken however many. Right. And the Holocaust doesn't happen. Yeah. And then there was there were Jews that got on boats and ended yeah. up getting out of Germany. They were turned away around yeah. the world. Yeah. And said, no, 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 we, we, we can't take you in. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, there is a bias towards. Um, well, it's like I, forget, I think it's anchoring, basically assuming like it can't get that bad. Like you, you think that anything that's going to happen, whether it's in the markets or just in your choices, there's, there's like in your mind, there's a certain like, like band, acceptable band of like, if I make this choice, yeah, it could be good or it could be bad, but it could only be like kind of bad. There's no way it could be catastrophic. So, uh, yeah, I, a lot of bad choices get made because of that, where you're not, you're not willing to take on the risk today of. Uh, an uncertain future. Uh, so you just go like, ah, basically it's the, it'll probably be fine. Nah, it'll probably be all right. Uh, maybe that's part of what happened. Well, part of it is just the easy road. It's the comfortable road. Well, yeah, sure. I'm arguing against that. <laughs> but if you're always arguing against that, right? If you're always arguing against the status quo, that's going to lead to more volatility. And that's going to lead to just in like the decisions you make and in outcomes. And sometimes it's going to lead to significant. And that's what everyone's afraid of is like significant downside. Yeah, I'm saying downsides are okay. <laughs> I'm saying that's that's reality. Downsides are reality, right? But if you can, uh, if you can protect against them in the long run, that can help provide like... I'm saying you can't. You can definitely mitigate any mitigate. Any, yeah. You can like mitigate risks and you can protect against like the, the like, I think most people want to live in a world where nothing bad ever happens. And so you just put yeah. our heads in the sand. See, this is a, this is a weird thing where we've ended up at a few times in the conversation, yeah. in the conversation, in the podcast where we agree on basic principles, but I don't, I don't know how to like feed off of that. I don't know how to like converse with that. Like the, the, the stance in which you're, you're, you're putting yourself in here because it's like, yes, we both agree that there are risks that you can't prevent in the world. What I'm saying is always throwing out the status quo might open you up to greater risks that you don't need to endure. Yeah, I don't think that's agreement, though. Like, I don't think we actually agree. How so? Like, keep going. So, okay. Give me more words. So the, the EVM conference. Yeah. The idea of, I mean, it's an immigration issue, correct? Well, okay. And to be fair, 
all I know about this is what you're telling me right now. Which so, is all I know about so it. So we're going to have a really hard time like conversing about this specific thing. But do we, we have a different example or something to talk about then? I don't know. A made up, a made up example that we can I don't bring know. up on the spot? I don't know. Because without some kind of fake example to... No, I, I'm just like letting you know, like I can't get in, like I won't be able to... No, no, I get it. And I have no more, no more information. All right. Um, I, don't, I, I can't think of a good made up example right now. Sure. But without a made up example to like move around... Any any example, like even confident, there's a million times in history, right? When we're looking back on historical tragedies where, where, where there's like something pops up. It's like, oh, that could have been an out. That could have been an out for humanity or for the society. Yeah. We didn't take that path. And it seems clear to us now. Yes. Mistakes get made. Choices get made. People, and I, I get... I even said like people sometimes are overcautious in their decision making, but it's hard to catastrophize. Yeah, I I, I do think mistakes can be made for sure, um, but I also think reality is way more malleable than most people want to believe. Okay, and I think we can make different choices. And yeah, we have the reality we have. We can't go back. We can't change things. Yeah, but we all have these moments in our lives. Where something, you know, some we come across someone and we could help them or we could do something mm-hmm. and we choose not to because that ah, doesn't really involve me. I don't really like it's idea of like sacrifice. We don't really want to make a sacrifice because the sacrifice is then you lose in a sacrifice. Like when you sacrifice something for someone else, yeah, you lose. You become you you enter the place of I'm the loser here. Mm-hmm. And you allow someone else to win off of off of your own gains, your own benefits, you give them to someone else with nothing in return. And there's no, there's no like upside to that in like real, there's no money upside, there's no like health upside, but I'm saying it's worthwhile even though there's not an upside, even though it is like a sacrifice is inherently a downside, I'm mm-hmm. saying it's still worthwhile to do. I'm saying that makes a better world. A better world requires sacrifices, requires risk. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to argue for. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you. Requires sacrifices, require risk, but it requires like... The, the the I guess where we uh, maybe I, I put a little addendum to it is you have to take the like the best risk possible. You can't just shoot blindly, right? You can't just like there there is a point where sacrifice will destroy you. You can give up too much, and especially like on the personal life, if you're trying to like uh, advance your career or build a family, protect provide for your family. There is a point where you go too far and you open yourself and your family up to greater risks. Like just think of the person who uh, gives away all of his income. Well, how is your family going to feed themselves? Yeah. So there is a point where, yes, it's good to take risks. Yes, it's good to make sacrifices. 100%. But you have to take like, I don't know, the best, the 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 try to to... Get the the make the best decision for the risk level that you're going to take, and that's where you're dealing with massive amount of uncertainty, like looking to the future. Yeah, and I I definitely agree that you shouldn't um, not put food on the table for your family. <laughs> My concern is that when you say, "Well, you got to think about it," then I think what that what people end up doing is, "Well, I got to think about," it, and they end up not, never doing anything. Yeah, they I'm, I'm concerned about the, the, the that the addendum yeah. then allows everyone a way out. Well, think of, okay, let's. And so that's my issue with this, like this idea, this even conference where nations come together, yeah. 
And it's like there's this opportunity on the table mm-hmm. and everybody ends up just finding a way out and walking away from the table and no one does anything. Yeah. That's what I'm concerned about is these moments in history and moments in our lives where you have an opportunity and you go, oh, yeah, risk is good, but I got it. And you think about it and nothing mm-hmm. happens. Nothing ever changes. And I feel like we live in a world in 2021 where nothing's really changing. Nothing hasn't changed that much. Yeah. All the changes that, that happen aren't really like yeah. actual change. We're in the same stagnant just back and forth, back and forth for 40, 40 years or so. So I think uh, personal, deeply held personal belief, I think a lot of that is a byproduct of feckless leadership. Talking about a conference, any sort of global conference, I have a general disinterest in those because you have, especially at the geopolitical level, like the people actually sitting in the conference doing the communication, like every 10 seconds have to go, okay, and so now now uh, France is saying this. So like, let's see, we got to run this up the chain and see if well, like, what we can give and what we can get. And, the, and then uh, it's all got to be like work together and it's proof thing. There isn't like just a clear direct leadership, like we're going this direction. Um, and then at the, uh, w- which is why I think, countries really need to act in their own best interests with the most with clearly defined leadership and like who's actually able to make the choices and that's going to be in conflict at times i think overall it works out best just like i think the individual needs to uh do the best they can to make choices to improve their lives which will at times be in conflict with other people you try to like grow and make make better decisions but i think what you're saying as far as Nothing ever changing is just, a, like I said, feckless leadership. And we saw a ton of that during COVID, during the lockdowns from the mayoral level to the governor's level to the head of the federal administration to presidential level where people weren't willing to make very clear statements on either like we don't know this or we know this now or this is what we're going with. It was all, it always felt like, well, first I got to know what the narrative is. It's all gameplay. And then I'm going to, right, I'm going to craft my position around whatever the accepted narrative is first. And I think that is, uh, yeah, devastating from the level of like civilization and moving us forward and improving us. Like it is hard. But to- that then does allow you to not make a mistake because your stance is always changing. So no mistakes ever been made because nothing was ever, no decision was made. <laughs> I I mean <clears throat> I I would say like not making a decision is there's always three choices like do uh make a decision like if a, if a binary choice between do A or B there's always a third one which is do nothing and that is an active decision and it's oftentimes the wrong one so I don't like I'm not arguing for that when I'm saying there are status quo type decisions it's like <laughs> If you're looking back over history and like uh or in investments right if you're right 60 percent of the time you're pretty damn good at your job that seemed like to be pretty good yeah yeah so you're trying to make those decisions where it's like oh this is like a 60 percent chance if you're a statistician 60 percent probability that's like nothing okay throw that out we got to get a new model figure something else out uh but in investments it's like well i'll take 60 percent take 60 percent an infinite amount of times it means I'm going to end up winning a lot, like more than I lose, which is all I want. Yeah. Uh, so when you're looking back on history, people oftentimes make those decisions that seem like the the 52% upside based on history. 
But you have a problem when you're making decisions based on history. Because history might have gotten those decisions wrong themselves. Or not as good. I don't know. I'm spinning out here. but um, Okay. So what's your feeling then on the U.S. priority in terms of... Um, so he makes a statement. Uh, Roosevelt was as much concerned to end the oppression of Jews as Lincoln was to end the slavery during the Civil War. Yeah, I, I think it's an overbroad comparison. But yes, your priority first as a president of the United States should be to the, the interests of your, your, your country, right? So, <clears throat> and again, getting back to like, he was talking about how uh, the, like France and England, they were appeasing Hitler. Well, Hitler ran Germany. He was, he, he was in power in Germany. So if you want to deal with this nation, that's the guy you're going to have to deal with. In geopolitics, sometimes you got to deal with scumbags. Uh, yeah. Or you have to invade and overthrow them. Well, we again, we just came out of World War One, the Great War. I don't think they want to go back to it. Germany's militarizing. They're starting they're committing human rights abuses. I don't know when it crosses the threshold. Like I know personally when it crosses the threshold, as far as like I there's a bunch of nations where I think we should be intervening in what's happening. From the Uyghurs in China right now to various African nations. But like then what are you supposed to do? Because this is always a problem with foreign foreign intervention. You show up, you overthrow whatever's leadership's there, you stop the oppression, and then what? Who insta- who who installs the next the next regime? Yeah. Ideally, that I would very much like that to come from like the people of these nations. For the people to rise up. Yeah, and uh, rise up, but to create their own government out of this, right? Yeah. Out of to take over because i don't know but <clears throat> yeah it's it's uh it's it's messy yeah and, and i just get stuck on like it's it's nice to think that in this scenario the u.s could have just like swept in early and fixed it but i i don't know and he doesn't tell us where all the viewpoints of like the our european allies were who would be at much greater risk and we saw, when World War Two started, we saw we're definitely at much greater risk of like pissing off Germany. We just fly in there and drop bombs and then go home. It's like yeah, it's on the other side of the pond. It doesn't doesn't bother us. Yeah. So uh, Zinn pivots and asks questions about the end of the war. I think it's funny. Beginning, end, the actual war. I don't know. We're not gonna talk. Not not gonna talk <laughs> about it. Don't worry about it. Quote. Did the behavior of the United States show that her war aims were humanitarian or centered on power and profit? Was she fighting the war to end the control by some nations over others or to make sure the controlling nations were friends of the United States? End quote. Zinn mentions the Atlantic Charter, which Roosevelt and Churchill released after meeting off the coast of Newfoundland in August of 1941. Quote, setting forth noble goals for the post-war world, saying their countries seek no aggrandizement, territorial or other, and that they respected the right of all peoples to choose the form of government under which they will live. The Atlantic Charter was celebrated as declaring the right of nations to self-determination, end quote. Zinn juxtaposes the Atlantic Charter with what he sees as direct hypocrisy. Quote, quietly. 
Behind the headlines in battles and bombings, American diplomats and businessmen worked hard to make sure that when the war ended, American economic power would be second to none in the world. United States business would penetrate areas that up to this time had been dominated by England. The open-door policy of equal access would be extended from Asia to Europe, meaning that the United States intended to push England aside and move in, end quote. Zinn argues that's exactly what happened in the Middle East with oil. Quote, by the end of the war, the dominant influence in Saudi Arabia was unquestionably the United States. King Ibn Saud was regarded no longer as a wild desert warrior, but as a key piece in the power game to be wooed by the West. Roosevelt, on his way back from Yalta in February 1945, entertained the king on the cruiser Quincy together with his entourage of 50 including two sons, a prime minister, an astrologer, and flocks of sheep for slaughter. Roosevelt then wrote to Ibn Saud, promising the United States would not change its Palestine policy without consulting the Arabs. In later years, the concern for oil would constantly compete with political concern for the Jewish state in the Middle East. But at this point, oil seemed more important. With British imperial power collapsing during World War II, the United States was ready to move in. Hull said early in the war, Leadership toward a new system of international relationships in trade and other economic affairs will devolve very largely upon the United States because of our great economic strength. We should assume this leadership and the responsibility that goes with it, primarily for reasons of pure national self-interest. Before the war was over, the administration was planning the outlines of the new international economic order based on partnership between government and big business. Lloyd Gardner says of Roosevelt's chief advisor, Harry Hopkins, who had organized the relief programs of the New Deal. No conservative outdid Hopkins in championing foreign investment and its protection. The poet Archibald McLeish, then an assistant secretary of state, spoke critically of what he saw in the post-war world. As things are now going, the peace we will make, the peace we seem to be making, will be a piece of oil, a piece of gold, a piece of shipping, a piece, in brief, without moral purpose or human interest, end quote. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting questions here. Um, what is peace? How should it be achieved? Is the use of money a valid road to peace? Um, and going back to Zinn's questions from the beginning, are power and profit incongruous with humanitarian or moral aims? Is it possible for there to be a world without control over others, or does life require some force having control over others? All right, so what is peace? Uh, I saw that in there, and I was like, well, it's when there's not war. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> which, as soon as I had that, uh, I uh, realized what would be thrown back at me. And that's, you can have not war with people and still have great amount of suffering and oppression and devastation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, just think about whether it's like, um, I don't know, poorly run government uh, leading to massive either economic catastrophes or turmoil or just generally like oppressing people within its own state. You're not at war. No one's, uh, the, the army isn't out there shooting bullets, but like people can be suffering. So I don't know. You know what peace is? Uh, you're a sheep herder and you just got your, you got your farm, your little cottage, you know, like a stone cottage with a thatch roof. You got, you got your little like stable around it or shearing your sheep and every day you take your sheep out and they eat the grass 
and then every night bring them in and you have yourself a nice little pipe as you just look over your sheep going yep them's my sheep sounds nice to me and you see like the the flowers the wildflowers just blowing in the breeze out there smoke coming out of the chimney smoke coming out of that chimney yeah yeah okay let me ask you this <laughs> Uh, if you could plan for this coming Wednesday to be a peaceful day, you still go to work, you still do your, your normal stuff, yeah. but it's a day of peace. What would that look like in your life? Yeah, so what do I consider chaos, right? Uh, so I'm still working. It's a, it's a day at work. So what's a peaceful yeah. day that includes work versus a chaotic day? Well, do you put peace as the opposite of, of chaos? Oh, that's fair. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, so if chaos enters the day for you, that then that's there can't be peace because there's chaos. Right? Yeah, we're going. We're going to war. Interesting. This, this is this is a battle day. Chaos has entered the ring. And I got to fight. Doesn't mean it was a bad day, by the way. I I can enjoy those days, but um, it's not it's not a day of peace. Yeah. So a day of peace would, I think, in my, in the perspective of this, I think it's the day went as was expected. And yeah, so especially in work, like, uh, like I had planned out, I tried, I'm, <laughs> I'm not that great at it, but I try to plan ahead. Like, oh, I'll be working on this tomorrow. Cause yeah. I'm someone. that it's like day starts and I work on that. Maybe get a couple emails, respond to those, but there isn't a big, like, boom, Hey, emergency request, everything, drop everything, pivot, work on this. Oh, and by the way, like you have to get it done. Like now, like we needed this yesterday. So that would be like a peaceful day. Uh, kind of, you get to work on what you planned on. Uh, and then, same, you know, go to the gym in the morning, after work, be able to end at a reasonable time, have dinner with my wife, conversations, and like get to bed at a reasonable hour. That's a peaceful day. Okay. So, let me so ask, I think it's around like meeting expectations. So let me ask you this if the expectation is to go to war and you go to war, did that still f- fall within the realm of, of, of peace as you conceive? No, I didn't know. Like I couldn't, that wouldn't make sense to me. <laughs> okay. So, so it is, so there's something more than expectation, but yeah, expectation is a large part of how you can see that's interesting. Yeah. Like the, at the individual day level, there would, there would be some of that. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the English language, I think we usually think about peace as absence. Yeah. Right. So yeah. in order to achieve peace, there has to be no war or no yeah. conflict or whatever. Right. Uh, in the Hebrew language, peace is not about absence. Like the word shalom, which a lot of people know, even if you're not religious, shalom mm-hmm. is kind of a, a word that's transcended languages, yeah. uh, is more about the idea of fullness. Okay. So to have a day of peace would be like a day of rich in conversation. Sure, sure. Or a day rich in whatever. And yeah, and like Peace comes about by, by the richness of things versus the removal of things. Yeah, yeah. I like the Hebrew um, conception of peace more than the English conception of peace. Well, Pers- personally, yeah. It, I mean, the Hebrew conception of peace would lead to a more fulfilling life. That I think so. Not only are you not like, yeah, it's not just the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of, and that's why you asked if like chaos was the antithesis for me. If if, if peace was the vo- devoid of if chaos, doesn't enter, then peace reigns. But it's it's not why I asked. But <laughs> okay, that's not why you asked. Well, I, 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 I well, I'll tell you why I asked after you finish this little riff. But yeah, I was just thinking like uh, if I didn't go to work and I just sit out in the backyard and do nothing 
or just watch TV all day. There'll be no conflict. By, there's yeah. By my definition, that could have been a peaceful day, but that's not a very f- fulfilling day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so I mean, think about like just like what does it look to have peace in America? They did well. We're not at war, so we're at peace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're like, well, maybe not. Yeah. Because, you know, is there a richness of things all across the land? No, I asked about the chaos thing because um, that's probably the fundamental, one of the fundamental arguments that we get into is um, for you to be at peace, there can be no chaos. So chaos needs to be removed. Whereas for me, uh, chaos is like a, a very important part of yeah. life because chaos is where creation comes from. Right. You can't have anything right. new without chaos. Right. Yeah, and I seek order. Yeah. Like, aggressively. Yes. Which is very different from when I was like 18, 19, 20, 21. I went through uh, a big transformation where I I used to uh, embrace more kind of like chaos in my life. And everybody kind of does this when they were young. But I'm not just saying not just as a byproduct of youth. Like, uh, I think that was just... Um, we're just kind of like uh, rebelling against the structure that my parents were providing, which is yeah. more orderly and uh, high amounts of discipline were required. And so it was just like pushing against that. But yeah, uh, mid twenties that switch flipped to where now I am like aggressively pursue more discipline, more order. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I see as beneficial, but I see as not the whole picture. Yep. For sure. So that's, I think that's uh, a fundamental fault line. Between, yeah, between our conversations. Yeah. (laughs) Because, because, yeah, I'll, I'll be arguing for some chaos and then you want to throw on an addendum to, uh, to etch out that little bit of chaos that I put in the picture. And then I come back and say, no, we need a little bit of chaos. And then then there's the addendum. (laughs) Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, it's a fault line. I, uh, I didn't have as good of a a line drawn around it. (laughs) Uh, but I was telling, uh, I was telling Nicole um, after one of our, our previous podcasts, like I was frustrated with some of the conversation. I was like, Ethan's willingness to like flip the game over drives me nuts. Yeah. It's always been even outside of like the podcast. Uh, uh, like I, I talk about, I've talked about an analogy. I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast. Yeah, I did an assumption when you sit down to play a board game is that yeah. everyone is playing to win. Yeah. And like you, <laughs> you have a willingness to not, and yeah. like that's that's almost impossible for my brain to like understand it's it's just like frustration yeah pure but, pure rage but i appreciate it uh well, we're still here we're still here we're, we're still still here at the table yeah okay so um talk a little bit about peace yeah w- which which one of the things you want to touch on next power and profit Zin's uh, are power and profit incongruous with humanitarian and moral aims. I had an interesting thought when I was reading through this that right now the number one tool that countries use um, for foreign intervention or to progress aims is all economics. Think like tariffs, trade restrictions, or trade deals that benefit countries you enter into various trade deals. So like lower tariffs, it's easier to trade between nations. Yeah. And right now, really the only thing we're doing to China, will get, so back to what you mentioned about the Uyghurs, are economic sanctions. Well, I think I made a comment, maybe it was the last episode, 
the idea of like capitalism as a, a way to not kill people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you're still at war. Yep. But it's all through economics. Keep going. And I, as I was like thinking about it, I was like, it only works in a, in a world that I guess we could, I would argue is broadly improving because, uh, economic, uh, using like economic means to apply pressure to a nation only works if that nation like cares about its people or listens to their people or like their people and be like, Hey, our lives are starting to get worse because of prices rising or we're not able to get the basic goods that we need to produce more advanced resources. So like, right. It's, it's, it's not like it, it, uh, it is, it assumes a willingness to play the game. Economic sanctions don't work on a nation that as soon as that happens, we're like, okay, we're going to go to war start blowing stuff up and we're just going to take what we need. Mm-hmm. It assumes that they're willing to play along in some way. Well, and and I mean, even if you think about like a feudal lord in medieval times mm-hmm. or uh, Xi Jinping in China, like if economics get worse, if things start costing more, the person at the top can keep that same lifestyle that they're living. Yeah. But the people below them will get more and more frustrated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I, I think it's kind of the economic thing that eventually that's what's going to cause the people to say no more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe you could argue for also some sort of um, daily life standards of being like locked up or being authoritarianism on um, daily freedoms. Yeah, yeah. Is different than economic stuff. So I think both of those could cause uh, people to revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, certainly uh, the mass populace at some point when their economics get affected to a certain point, yeah, they're going to say, I'm done. Yeah. I'm not going to work. I'm mm-hmm. going out in the streets. And I've seen it uh, anecdotally. So in my own life that it's weird things that kind of like set people off as far as like, this is a bridge too far. Uh, at a company that I worked at, they were, they were changing benefits they're changing like these the, the broad benefit plans, right? And one of the things they did is they got rid of the pension plan. So they went from uh, you're, you're just kind of like accruing uh, a defined benefit pension plan to a uh, defined contribution. 401, they moved to a 401k, which most people are familiar with. Yeah. Okay. At the same time, or right around the same time, they stopped funding clubs. This work had like clubs, so you could have like your tennis club, your golf club, your chess club, your book readers club, and you would get like actually some funding from the company. Oh wow! To like do this, yeah, like the rage around the ending of the clubs was much greater than <laughs> than around the removal of the defined benefit plan to a defined contribution, which. To an individual, it's a much greater loss in benefit. That was way bigger as far as the dollars that you're losing, the benefit to yourself and like your future uh, family. <laughs> but the clubs, that was like more tangible. Well, yeah, on a week-to-week basis, people don't live for that, whatever those extra dollars were. Yeah. Those are just numbers. That club, that's the thing that makes the people's life worth living. Yes. It's Wednesday. I'm going to chess club and see my chess buddies. And it's going to be great. Yeah, Thursday happens, and it's 
well, the next five days are going to kind of suck, but Wednesday, yeah. I'm going to chess club with my chess buddies, and it's going to be great. And do you remember back in one of one of the one of the many chapters that covered strikes? Uh, I think it was some like copper mine or coal mine or whatever. The uh, the young workers at the mine went out a band like went on strike because they tried to change their lunch hour. Yep. So you're working in like oppressive, horrible situations. You could even be living in a country that's like ratcheting up the temperature, like taking away freedoms, uh, putting more restrictions on speech, putting more restrictions on your movement, taxing you higher, whatever it may be. And then it's like, and now bread costs 50 cents more. And everyone's in the street. It's too much. With pitchforks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's weird things that actually get people out like actually it's that it's that final straw yeah that really motivates it but you're right when it comes to kind of like the dot the clubs versus the actual dollars people don't think that way this is covered a lot in behavioral finance and in just in like books on happy like general books oh, on like behavioral finance so it's behavioral that comes out of psychology yeah yeah it's a blending of psychology and economics it's oh, that's an interesting field it's relatively new um, I, I got to read a book in that. I would love that. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I can't think of the ones off the top of my head, but, uh, yeah, it's good because what it's trying to explain is, so in economic theory, it's all based around the rational man, not, not all of it, <laughs> but yeah, 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 the, yeah. So a rational decision maker, there's some right? kind of voodoo doll out there that is supposed to be like <laughs> the perfectly rational. Yeah. yeah. And if you're just thinking about like, you just draw your, uh, demand supply curves, and you're talking about, well, there's this policy, this this shifts demand, this shifts supply. Those are based around an assumption generally of like efficient markets, rational decision making, da, 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 da. When you look at the actual day-to-day of the market, because like long-term, they hold. That's why they're economic theories. Sure. Uh, short-term, day-to-day, nope. There's all sorts of like dislocations in like price or how markets moves that can't be that that break like the rational man in the official markets hypotheses. That's where behavioral finance tries to come in. So like, why does GameStop happen? Why does what happened to the GameStop stop? Why does that happen? And and tries to build in like, well, we have all these different factors and some of them being behavioral as, and within behavioral is like people's willingness. Um, they're like downside loss hurts more than upside uh feels good i yeah, yeah. i got lost there yeah no you're more afraid of downside than you are of ups of being hurt by the downside than you will feel good by winning on the upside um and that shows up and they talk about this just if you're even reading just general books on kind of like happiness or purposefulness Right now, last few years in like the U.S., generally you can chart out it's around seventy five thousand dollars of income for like yeah. uh, individual or household. That like as your income rises within like finance, we call it like the utility, the marginal utility of income. You just like don't really like your happiness doesn't continue to rise past seventy five. It does rise, but yeah, not not as like it like curves off. So so people can't see this, but I'm drawing a straight a straight angular kind of like algebraic line. That's that's your income, but your happiness it sticks with it, sticks with it, sticks with it. Then you hit seventy five and it starts to like taper off. Like yeah, the marginal so, utility of each additional dollar is less because 
your basic needs are met. Not only your basic needs, like like food, uh, housing, um, being able to pay your like utility bills, da 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 da. Your basic bills. You now also have like additional income to like spend on experiences and 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 the kind of like the toys. So after that, generally they would say that like money is no longer making you happier. So you like just taking a new job that pays you more isn't going to make you happier. So now you you hit a point where purpose becomes way more important. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I think there is. I don't know if you feel this. I, sometimes I like um, uh, romanticize like subsistence lifestyle, like being out in the wilderness, and your your whole focus for the day is I need food so I can survive till tomorrow. That that almost sounds nice. Yeah, people talk a lot about, um, I was just listening to a podcast yesterday about depression and anxiety were these things um, as prevalent in older times as today, mm. or are they byproducts of modernity? Like you didn't, you didn't have time to bother with depression and anxiety. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we want to go into like a, um, sure, a, a neurological level, or sure, stuff, but like, yeah, I mean... Some of these things were just. Um, I mean, you think about it, like, um, where does depression come from? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't want to go into this, but yeah, yeah. So yeah. the the question is: Did people in ancient Greece was there the the same percentage? Is depression a similar percentage across time? Yeah, which of course we have no way to tell, right? Or is it a large? Or is it a byproduct of? Probably industrialization sure. more so than enlightenment. But mm-hmm. even enlightenment, I mean, in some sense, like pre-enlightenment, when there's just a rule set that's given to you through a religious framework and everyone just follows this, yeah. everyone's on the same page. Maybe overall that page isn't the best page you could be on, but everybody's on the page. Everyone's working on the same page. Right, right, right. Everyone's together. Um, also thinking about um, community. And like we talk a lot about like tribalism right now being like political tribes. Yeah, yeah. But like, I mean, tribes were geographically bound. You mm-hmm. had your tribe that you you were born into and probably died with, and that was it. And so you were always around people, and not just your family, but other people. You had you were you moved in tribes, so you always had community at just about every part of your day. Maybe you went off on a hunting party and were gone yeah. for a month or two but you knew you were coming back to your tribe and your people. You always had your people. Whereas today, like one of the tasks of adulthood is to like find a tribe. Yeah. That's yeah. never the way it's been. The mm. idea of like, I have to go out and find it, especially if you leave the tribe you were born into. Yeah. And then, then how do you, well, how do you find a tribe? How do you find your people? Right. Right. I mean, do you do that just via politics? That's not enough. <laughs> There's, I mean, whether you're left or right, there's yeah. lots of people that you don't really want to spend time with just because you have the same political thing. Right. Or even, even, I mean, religion does a good job at it. Yeah. But even, I mean, it's not like everybody, you love everybody in the church you go to, the synagogue you go to, there's people that drive sure. you nuts there. But like, so where, how, yeah, do, how where, do you find the people you want to have dinner with? Where do you find shared values, common interests, the right amount of, of, uh, kind of like, um, conflict that's like enjoyable? Yeah, you know where where it's, it it makes it, it it's that it's that uh, paprika of life. It yeah, just adds flavor to it. Um, sure. But the idea that that we're telling people, yeah, you have to go out and find your tribe. That's a new idea. Hmm. I never thought of that. 
and that's not something humans I don't think are very good at. And so there's a yes. lot of people. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of people who are just super lonely and depressed. Yeah. Because they require a tribe for life. They require community and people around them that will be there for them. And if yeah. they don't have enough yeah. berries, they're going to give them a couple berries for the day. Yeah. And people got to figure that out and find that. And that's 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 a problem we haven't solved yet. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just a, a random take for the day. <laughs> oh, I like that. I never thought of that. Yeah, so what, the thing about that uh, this week. What do you think of... Uh, you had mentioned it here is like power and profit. Uh, just specifically... Uh, let me throw this out. This, this is like a note that I put on. Let me get your thoughts. Zim perceives economic and business interests as needing to exert control or have power to be profitable. Is that fair? Say it again. Zin perceives economic and business interests as needing to exert control or have power to be profitable. I think he's he believes that profit comes from power. Is it profit? Would that be, would that be a fair assumption? profit? A surplus of money comes yeah. from power. Man, power is a difficult word for me. Damn it. <laughs> okay. This, this, Hit me with it. Well, no, just this, this is how my brain works. So you select yeah. power and I go, what do you mean by the word? What do you mean by the word power? And well, got, really, we I've need got, to know what, what Zinn yeah, means but I've by got the like, word I've got, I've got 15 different definitions of, of power in my brain right now, and I don't know which one to put in. Sure. So I go like, I don't know how to respond to that question because I don't know which of the 15 <laughs> powers that are in my brain as, <laughs> as individual genealogical threads of power uh. to insert. How do we think Zinn would define power from like the business structure? So business power, I just think of it as like control over the market and control over uh, the uh, people's like ability to choose. Yeah, I think so Zinn's conception of power probably, I mean, it has to do with class, right? So it has yeah. to do with the upper class having, um, yeah, dominance, yep. control, control is a great word. Over the working class. And the sure. working class, I think he would probably say, are powerless. Yeah. I don't think I would agree that the working class are powerless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, also, I don't think he would view power at an individual level. I think his conception of power probably only comes at a group level. Sure. Right? Like, I mean, does he talk a lot about individuals You're just not being talk- powerful? No. Uh, only in the context of a group. Yeah, like, right, rising up, whatnot. Yeah. And so that's a tricky thing because then, yeah, <clears throat> for yeah. you, your lens of power is almost exclusively through an individual. Yeah. But, not, not that a group couldn't be powerful. Right. But your starting point is going to be the individual where his starting point is going to be yeah. a group. Got to get a group up first and then power derives from that. But from within the... I'm trying to get So to, power derives from a group exerting dominance and control... Over another group, group lower industry. on a hierarchy. Sure. Okay. That's how it defines it. <laughs> Perfect. Now, <laughs> does do, I think what I've kind of gotten over the course of reading this is that Zinn perceives economic and business interests. What has to happen first is power, therefore profit. Profit derives out of power having control over a marketplace having control over the levers of government having control like that's where profit comes from for these companies i agree okay now flip it on its head 
All right. Yes, I have to. Uh, I think that he misses that the power a business is able to acquire is given to them freely more and more today than it was then by the people who are choosing to do business with them. I don't believe that the majority of businesses are run by Tony Soprano, even at this time. (laughs) Yes, there were those. They existed. Some of them got very big through exerting that sort of like thuggish power. Broadly speaking, uh, I don't think that's how companies grow. Profit is the excess value provided by their cut to their customers above what like the, 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 the cost of producing the good. Does that make sense? Profit is the excess value provided to customers above what it costs to produce the good. Excess value. Yes. Okay. Let's go to the lemonade stand. Okay. Yep. Take me there. So what do we need for a glass of lemonade? We need a glass. We need some ice. We need lemonade. There's costs involved in that, right? Yep. To acquire the glass, to freeze the ice, to squeeze the lemons, add the sugar, right? And then you have to be there with the glass of lemonade for someone to enjoy. Yeah, place is important. Yeah, so material cost, labor cost, let's just go at that, costs five cents, let's say, for a glass of lemonade. Yeah. yeah. We're going to sell that glass of lemonade to you, Ethan, for 10 cents on a very hot day when you're walking down the street and you see that glass of lemonade and go, oh my God, that would be the perfect thing to parch my thirst right now. I just can't wait to get that ice cold lemonade. 10 cents, fair price. That's five cents above the materials and the labor that went into producing that glass of lemonade. Yeah, yeah. You perceive a value in that product, profit of an additional five cents because of its availability to you at a specific time, at a specific place with no uh, work on your part to acquire those resources. So it's providing you value in excess of what went into it. Yes. Can I ask a question? Do you want to keep going? I th- Yeah. No. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So here's my question is that glass lemonade's 10 cents. Yep. What if you're selling it for 30 cents? Are you willing to pay 30 cents? If I don't have a choice. Yes. In, in terms of another this is option tri- yeah. at the core. So like that's, so this is a this is a tricky thing. That's where I went with the excess value. I was like, uh. Right. Okay. So the reason it exists is because you are willing to pay ten cents. But if now, okay, no, no, no. Yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me answer this for you. Mm-hmm. Let me let me let me tell you what you're gonna tell me. Yeah. Is if I see somebody selling lemonade at thirty cents and people are buying it and I go, That's too much. I can sell it for ten cents and still make money. I show up across the corner, I get all the business. Potentially, yeah. But even beyond that, you could be like, whoa, there is no value for me in that 30 cents cup of lemonade. It's too much. That doesn't provide, like the value that it will provide me on this hot summer day does not equal 30 cents. So you don't partake. So there's an individual so argument. So there's no profit there. And there's for also the company a competition argument. Yes. But just outside of competition, just one company right now, there's no profit for a, to be made off of you selling the glass of lemonade at 30 cents. You're out. Not interested. Sure. But maybe 10, maybe you're in. 
12, there's a point where you're out. Yeah. Now bringing in competition, there is a point where the price gets so high that maybe they hit they hit the perfect point, right, from a production standpoint. Oh, boom. If we raise the price anymore, let's say it is 30 cents. If we go up anymore, we're going to start to lose a few customers. If we go down a little more, yeah, we'll gain more customers, but then we need to acquire more lemons than we can acquire right now. It, it would it would up our variable costs and we wouldn't make it. It's a marginal return yeah, yeah. on investment. <clears throat> Someone across the street opens a lemonade stand because they're like, well, there's this huge section of the market that's willing to drink lemonade. They want lemonade, but they're uninterested at 30 cents a glass. So we're going to figure out how to produce lemonade at 20 cents a glass. And they do that. The profit comes in basically at incentivizing the individual to find value in the good above what it costs to produce. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you feel like in the notion of incentivizing individual Mm -hmm. that there's not a power dynamic there? There is a power dynamic. That's like, and that you can watch that come in with branding with like, yeah. So think about like in, uh, in high school, whatever was, was the hot new toy that everybody had to have, or maybe junior high. I got made fun of for clothes. Sure. Clothes. Yeah. Like not dressing the right way. Yeah. For wearing mm-hmm. and one. Yeah. <laughs> was that not cool in high school? Oh, and one's definitely not cool. Oh man. See, that's the problem with homeschool. Like. That's a perk, actually. That's a perk. All the trends. It's not yeah. a problem. It's a perk. <laughs> no, it, you know what? I will agree with that. That was a great perk. I never got like, I got made fun of for some things like at youth group or whatnot, but never to the level that anyone would have had to go through in high school. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyways, um, yeah. So I'm not saying that th- that stuff doesn't exist. Yeah. I was cu- I was you don't, none of us get to make decisions in a vacuum. None of us get to make decisions devoid of bias, devoid of outside influence, devoid of all sorts of incentives beyond what like a, a company is trying to provide to us. I'll grant that. Um, but there's still have to craft various incentives to try to convince a consumer that they are providing that consumer greater value than what it costs to create the product. Yeah, We are in agreement because we got on this like a couple episodes ago, if you're talking about like, like paying massive amounts of money for like a, a, an item of clothing that doesn't provide utilitarian benefit, it's literally just buying it for the brand, that that's silly and not healthy. Whatever has happened in that world of, of like that marketplace, there is a perceived value above what it costs to produce that item. And rarity can just... just Sheer rarity can be a part of that. I don't yeah. understand it, but it exists. So anyways, getting back to this. Profit, if it's if, I'll say if, if it's the excess value provided to customers above what it costs to produce a good, really good companies generally provide lots of excess value to lots of customers and make lots of profit. This allows them to grow faster than other companies this allows them to acquire power through influence, through control over the marketplace. They can get big enough where they don't even have to be Tony Soprano anymore. New, like they can have the biggest lemonade stand selling 30, 30 cent lemonade cups and they got big lemonade stands all up and down all over the city. Then somebody figures out how to produce 
glasses of lemonade for 20 cents. They don't even have to muscle them out. They can just buy them because companies are created all the time by innovative individuals who come up with good ideas. They start working on these good ideas. They start producing. They start shaking up the market. And then big companies come to them and go, hey, this is a really cool idea. Would you like tens of millions of dollars for this idea? And then it's our idea. And at the individual level, a lot of times those innovative uh, disruptors go, yep, that's what I want. I'm getting me a boat. I'm out. Yep. And now the big company can, is able to continue being the big company with power. So that's the best I could turn on its head where I think power derives from more so today, I'll say more so today. Yeah. yeah. Derives from like honest to goodness value being provided to the consumer. What's scary is what happens down the road. Well, that's what I was going to say. Isn't there like a phase one mm-hmm. where your argument is, I think, pretty much fully accurate today? Mm-hmm. Then there's a phase two where it's not the same game anymore because now you have the power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where we get to uh, uh, regulatory capture, which we've talked about. Because I, th- I, th- I think the idea of the- like the market in terms of like doing good things in phase one, I'm pretty much on board with. Mm-hmm. But the idea that the market is going to like help people know what to do once they have power, mm-hmm. I'm not convinced of. I have a lot of concerns when it comes to what to do with power. Yeah. Because without <clears throat> some sort of like moral framework of some sort, yes, I don't think anything, not anything, I think it's rare that something good is going to happen. Yeah. Because I think that power just naturally corrupts. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's 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 a uh, in my brain I'm going it's a similar idea if you think about like um, even you just consider like um, the idea of like evolution in terms of like yeah. competition driving yeah. you know something to be like oh now we have a human mm-hmm. and now this human can kill everything and so the human now dominates all the natural animals and figures out how to dominate the natural environment. Yeah. But then what does the human do with the power it now has? Mm-hmm. So we've, this competition and innovation is driven to this point of phase one. We have this really cool thing. But now it's the bigger question of what to do with this cool thing, what to do with this new power. Right, right. And I'm not convinced anyone has an answer to that second question. I think we have some really good systems for phase one. Yeah. I don't know. And maybe phase two isn't even possible. Maybe it's not systematic. Here's what I think we, here's what I rely on when it comes to that. Big companies, when, 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 when they, after they have uh, acquired a lot of customers and a lot of profit and all the powers, eventually the, I don't know, the true innovators at the companies, they retire, they die off, they get forced out, whatever. Now these giant companies begin to focus on the perpetuation of their market share. Uh, They become, and what I think tends to happen is you start to see not innovators from within having control over the company, but people who are good at running companies start to come in. 
yes. or perceived good at running companies. The people who are perceived as being the best at running companies are generally the people who don't rock the boat. Yes. They protect status quo. They seek stability and certainty. It's what shareholders like. Once that happens, uh, and those are the people who are most likely to come up with ideas like, oh, we'll just buy up every tiny like competitor that shows up so that way we can like maintain market share. Or they're like, yeah, we'll we'll uh, get people installed in various regulatory agencies to enact laws that make it harder for small companies to turn into big companies and compete with us. And we're seeing this in big tech, right? Where we're like on the second generation. Huge. huge. In a lot, lot of respects. You know what's a perfect example is minimum wage. You know who supports minimum wage big time? Walmart, McDonald's. I think McDonald's. Yeah. Really, really big companies because it doesn't matter to them. They have enough cash on hand that if the, the minimum wage could go to $20 You're saying an they hour, support increasing minimum wage. Yeah. Because they can, they can take the hit. They can just fire people. doesn't matter. 15, make it 20. Who cares? We can get rid of people. We can have robots do it because we have the cash flow to buy robots. Yeah. And we've seen in the marketplace that things are advanced enough that it can actually do these jobs, right? They don't care. They support it. It also gives them some social capital, perceived social capital that they like want people to earn more. The people it destroys are the small and medium-sized companies that don't have the cash flow to switch to robots, to switch to automated tellers. It destroys their competition. So yeah, in the short run, they're going to get hurt, the big companies, they're going to have to pay up more for hourly wages for employees. But in the long run, they just gobble up more market share via government regulation. So where was I going to as far as yeah, like yeah, what yeah. helps this? <laughs> you went yeah. on to minimum wage and I was like, oh no, are we, going, are we getting back? No, no you were talking about... Um, the power I, consolidates power. Power like well, accrues more Well, an innovator power. comes in and then a manager comes in after the innovator... Yeah. And just doesn't rock the boat. Doesn't rock the boat. Wants to keep things steady. Yeah. Shareholders like that. These companies become, they eventually become stagnant. They eventually become uninteresting and boring. They eventually become Kodak. Kodak is a legendary example of a company that basically boo-pooed digital cameras. They focused more resources on film at the time that digital cameras were first starting to come out. I think they even like invented a digital camera. Someone within their organization. Uh, sure. And they're like, nah, they suck. We're not going to do this. Dead. Gone. Buried. Like, So what it takes is young innovators that don't play along with the system. I love those types of people. The guys who are so... Uh, they have such incredible vision and so much belief in themselves and they're not obsessed about money that they come up with these disruptive ideas and the big check shows up and they just, no, thank you. We're going to go our own way. Okay. So that's what it takes. So let me ask you a question. So in, in this, in this framework I'm putting out where phase one is, uh, using profit to get power. Yep. Phase two is then you have power. What to do with it? Yeah. What I heard you say was what to do with power is hold on until you're killed. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. I'm saying that's what that's what happens. Okay. Yeah, that's what happens. So, so this question of what to do with power it's self hasn't, hasn't been solved. 
I think I think no, I think there's like an evolutionary fix in place where just it consumes itself. But but it is like then you just you got it. So hold on and hold on to it till you die because you're gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there isn't a sense of like to do something good with it, or to it's just now someone's going to come up and they're going to be better and they're going to kill you. Well, and I'm not, I'm not, get, I'm not saying everyone who has every big company that has power uses it for evil. No, 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 no. But <clears throat> yeah, like if you if you slow down, uh, I don't know. I just it's it's the cycle, it's the business cycle, it's the economic cycle, it's the human cycle. Things grow old and die. Okay, okay, okay. so then there's this. Oh, where's that quote? Um, the 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 poet where he says Archibald McLeish mm-hmm. as things are now going the peace we will make the peace we seem to be making will be a piece of oil a piece of gold a piece of shipping a piece in brief without moral purpose or human interest so the idea like you get the profit you get the power and you're gonna die and that's just the cycle is there a goal is it there's well, a, is there a point to do something with profit and power should there be some sort of aim or something or is it just it's yeah. been a wild ride and well the you is is we have to be cautious there because like i don't know who this person is i don't know why they acquire and i don't know what they're doing with it that that i have to put on the individual because i don't believe institutions are capable of good just like i don't believe governments are capable of good interesting there's they're 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 uh they're capable it like businesses are capable of providing a product people have to do good okay yeah i agree with that statement yeah so when it comes to like what are you doing with this power well when you when a big company exists part of what happens is there (laughs) there's no person steering that ship anymore like there is a ceo and broadly they're making decisions on like where the company's going to go but if you if you line up all their their a company's quote-unquote good or bad actions over the course of a year i mean you can put a lot of that on the individuals who made those decisions, which are more like kind of at the management level. Like you can have guys that are just, you can have like bad people work for good companies and yeah, they're yeah. going to make bad decisions um, to try to enrich themselves or persecute others. Like uh, I think the same thing happens with government. There can be good people within government that make good decisions, but a government as an institution is incapable of good or evil. So basically this, can groups do good or evil? Like, 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 does this conception you have, government, institutions, businesses, is this the same as groups? Or is a group, is that different to you in your brain? I think, I think it's the same. And that like, group, you bring a bunch of people together of common ideas or common beliefs and you give them a fixed common goal and they end up producing good out of it. So yeah, like, like groups can be good, but the group itself cannot be good. It's just like an amalgamation of people brought together for a common goal that like good comes out of it. I, does that make sense? I, yeah, it's it, just, it's interesting thinking about Zen because I think that Zen would argue that good and evil probably comes out of groups more so than out of an individual. And I don't know if that's yeah. true, but I think maybe he would. Because huh. so much of his conception of the world is groups. Yeah, yeah. And that and that's uh I I agree. <laughs> I don't Yeah. No, it's been fun. You you got anything else or is that a wrap? Uh I no, I think I can uh 
land it, land it there. Stumble, stumble through the finish line. These no, last words not, here. not not a stumble, not a stumble. But uh, no, that was a good start to Zin's not covering of World War Two. So yeah, maybe <laughs> we'll touch Korean War next week. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll get to Bay of Pigs. Maybe we won't. <laughs> But join us next week for uh, part two of this chapter. Uh, And thank you, everyone, for coming out to the Devil's Workshop. Cheers.